Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. The Medicine Path Podcast is an ongoing exploration into the intersections of spirituality, depth psychology, and psychedelics. The Medicine Path is a wholly independent and listener-supported project, so please consider becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash medicine path or by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. You can find out more information at medicinepathpodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Brian James. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I welcome back Michael Mead for the second time on the podcast. Michael is one of those teachers that I find myself going back to time and time again, whenever I'm feeling uncertain about the state of the world and my role in it. The breadth and depth of his wisdom when it comes to the subjects of soul, initiation, ritual, and elderhood is rare, and even rarer still in someone that is still alive and functioning as an elder for all us spiritual orphans. So when I started revisiting the topic of initiation as it might be relevant to the global pandemic that we're all still in the midst of, but slowly, possibly emerging from, finally, I thought of Michael. And I've also been thinking and writing about how models of initiation and ritual might be something worthy of serious consideration as psychedelic therapy clinics are beginning to pop up all over North America like mushrooms after a fall rain. My primary questions were about whether going through an ordeal or intense experience like a pandemic or psychedelic ceremony or therapy is enough for it to be initiatory. Or does there need to be a certain structure in place and the guidance of a ritual elder for it to be truly effective in causing a transformation? I was hoping Michael would have some wisdom to impart from his decades of leading rituals of all kinds, and I wasn't disappointed. We went really deep into this topic, and our conversation has left me feeling affirmed as to the importance of this consideration And it's also given me a lot to chew on, which is, in my books, always the sign of a good conversation. American satirist H.L. Mencken once wrote that there is always an easy solution to every problem, 
neat, plausible, and wrong. Part of what makes me uneasy about the way the psychedelic therapy movement is being packaged up and made palatable for the masses as the answer for just about every ailment just feels all too neat, tidy, and antiseptic. Transformation is never easy. It's never neat. It's never tidy. It's a messy business, and if we want to utilize psychedelics for real, lasting transformation and healing, we're going to need some leaders who are courageous and capable enough to deal with a mess. And I just don't see that conversation happening in all the enthusiastic PR around the psychedelic therapies. And that strikes me as not only disingenuous, but actually irresponsible. If you're at all interested in any of this stuff, you're going to get a lot out of this episode. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Michael Mead on The Medicine Path. of zoom by the way (laughs) (laughs) they were bound to get there (laughs) just a warning we're now recording (laughs) yeah so i'm here with uh michael mead and it's the second time i've been honored to have him on the podcast and so let me first begin just by welcoming you back michael it's great to see you again and great to hear your voice likewise good to be with you brian Yeah, I got to say, you're one of the elders that I look to over the years when I'm feeling like I need some perspective on what's going on in the world, or I need to refocus in on what I think is important. And I'm just really grateful that you're still so active and you're doing a lot of stuff online now. And so to have this kind of access to you has been really helpful for me over the past, uh, what, year and a half that we've been going through this pandemic together. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's necessary to be able to find meaningful conversations, especially given the condition of the outside world, pandemic and beyond pandemic. Yeah. And I guess um, what led me to reach out to you and your team this time was a bit of a synchronicity because I've been thinking a lot about initiation and rites of initiation, um, particularly around this pandemic and how it could possibly be an initiatory process for our global community and for us each personally. Um, But also because I've been thinking about it in relation to this industry that's starting up around psychedelic therapy and how it's been quite medicalized. It's being done in clinics. And, you know, I've been really curious about how we could bring a ritual process into that therapy, because I think that's part of what makes that kind of, um, you know, the plant medicines, uh, what makes them effective is the ceremony around the, the actual ingestion of the medicine. So thinking about all this, going back to, you know, people like Robert Moore, who's done a lot of great writing and speaking about initiation. And 
in my inbox up pop this notification that you're going to be doing a workshop on initiation of self and soul. So I thought, well, this seems like a synchronicity. I got to check in with Michael and see, you know, what he's planning for this and how he sees initiation as part of all this whole kind of global pandemic that we're going through. So maybe if you could start just by talking about um, how you defined true initiation and if it takes more than just a kind of dramatic or intense experience to be an initiatory process. Yeah, it's more than simple experience. Um, So what I've been speaking about and writing about is that we're going through a collective rite of passage. And the reason I'm saying that is the classic elements of initiation, which is usually described as three steps, with the first step being separation, where a person feels separated from regular life, from their routines, from other people, um, whatever the separation might be, that's the beginning. And I'm suggesting that um, um, the archetype of initiation, to put it in psychological terms, is the dynamic of transformation. So that's a background idea. Whenever transformation is happening or required, the dynamic of it is the archetype of initiation. So first step is separation, which often has hints of death. And that can be things just feel like it's dying. It doesn't have to be literal death. And once the separation occurs, it moves into the second step, which is often seen as challenge, ordeal, suffering, descent, um, so that it isn't a movement upward into spirit to begin with. It's actually a descent into soul, you could say. And that's usually the most extended period. And the other idea that goes along with the second step of initiation for me is liminality. Limin being the Latin word for the bottom, the threshold of a doorway. So that initiation puts people betwixt and between, betwixt who they were and who they thought they were, and yet not yet at the place where they are becoming someone else. And I say that's happening to us collectively, that entire cultures now are betwixt what they used to be or thought they were, but not yet arrived at a place that can be defined or clearly stated. Um, And then the third step is the return, the return to a sense of community, um, which usually has with it the idea of a conscious recognition of what has changed. So that's one way to describe the three steps. And I think the separation is clear. The pandemic, the coronavirus has literally made people separate. It has made people isolated and it has made death a subject throughout the world. In Western world where they, you know, death is not typically a subject. Every day there's a count of how many people died. And so all the elements of separation and the beginning of initiation are there. And then suffering, challenge, ordeal, betwixt and between, descent, with descent being a key thing. So that Mm -hmm. most people experienced the separation, went into a descent psychologically, which for most people can be overwhelming, especially if they don't understand how the psyche works, because soul likes descent. Soul thinks that 
we're intentionally going into the deeper areas to find aspects of ourselves that are not yet conscious. But since people don't know that, they think feeling isolated, feeling sad, feeling anxious, people think those are all bad things. But in the, in the psyche, when seen as part of transformation, those are necessary things. Mm-hmm. And then the big problem in all consideration of rites of passage or initiation is the return. And I say that because almost all people 20 years or older have experienced separation, loss, some kind of dissent, psychological turbulence, but hardly anyone has re- has experienced a return to a meaningful, soulful community with a conscious recognition of changes that have occurred. So, yeah. so there's a big problem that is collectively what comes next. Most people think they want to go back. You hear people saying they want to go back to normal. Uh, that's because they don't understand that transformation means you go forward without knowing where you're going. Right. But no one, people don't want to experience that, so they get nostalgic or desperate for something familiar. Mm-hmm. And initiation is about opening areas of the soul that are not familiar. Yeah. Yeah. So that that kind of archetype of initiation, um, people like Mircea Eliadi and Victor Turner spent a lot of time looking at different cultures around the world. And, and they're the ones who started to identify these three stages, along with Van Genup even earlier. So the, the kind of questions that come up for me around looking at COVID, the pandemic, as an initiatory process and how it might fit into that archetype of initiation is really around the, the middle stage, that liminal period. And, you know, one of the things that Robert Moore uh, did to evolve the thinking of Turner and Iliadi was pointing out the importance of ritual elder to create a container and help to move things forward, uh, create a context for that ordeal and suffering and unknowing and confusion and all of the stuff that's part of liminality. Um, and so that's where my question is, like without the ritual elder to guide and to contain this middle stage, um, what are the chances that this actually will lead to a kind of communal initiation into a new way of being? I'm not sure what the chances are, but I'll say something about where I think it's going and then come back to the trouble, the difficulty you're naming. Um, It doesn't require that everybody agree on the arrival. It's, it's more, it's like in the individual psyche, not everything would transform at once. And so a person arrives at a completely new place with a deeper understanding, but it's not the same as understanding everything. And so I think in terms of collective rite of passage, everybody doesn't have to agree and everybody doesn't even have to understand what's going on. A core percentage proportion of people, and I don't know what proportion it is, are enough to shift the whole thing. That would be the theory. Um, and so then, but to address what you were saying about the problem. So yeah, the, usually uh, this is all considered a ritual. Ritual is the way humans have done it throughout human history. Um, and one of the key things is in order to go through a meaningful transformation, a person has to um, release their ego. 
in a sense, because it's also considered to be like a rebirth, that you go into a death and then a rebirth. That's what the descent is about. The death seen psychologically, the death is the, uh, the death of the ego. The ego doesn't want to transform. The ego wants to keep it the way it thinks it's protected. Um, but the soul, which wants to transform, the soul wants us to transform continually. So initiation isn't a one-time thing. It just means to keep stepping into the road of transformation and expansion, deepening growth, greater understanding. And so in ritual terms, there would be uh, the elders or uh, the guides, whoever's going to be uh, guiding the ritual. And that's what allows a person to let go of their ego. In other words, you, you turn it over to someone that you trust or hope is going to, that knows more than you do and is going to guide it in a good way. Mm. And that allows the ego to kind of die off or slip into the background because the ego is in the way. The ego is literally our defense against being overwhelmed and annihilated. Mm -hmm. And in a, in a ritual, you allow the ritual to take over. And so culturally, we don't have that. We really don't have that. The idea of the elder doesn't even exist in any meaningful way because the elder, now this gets important in a way, the archetype of the elder doesn't mean an older person, right? Mm -hmm. The African proverb is everyone gets old, not everyone gets elder or white hair doesn't make the elder. So the elder is the awakened person who has learned from their own initiatory life experiences. So that's one issue. We don't have that collectively very much at all. Um, but the other side of it is psychologically, everyone has an inner elder, a sage in the heart. So when I use the title initiations of self and soul, Part of it is I want to talk about the psychological initiatory experience of awakening to a deep self within, which also could be called awakening to the sage in the heart, because that can happen without an outside ritual. The idea of people initiating themselves is a really dangerous idea that usually doesn't work. But psychologically, we could say that if a person learns that there's a deeper knowing self inside themselves, and that occurs as a real awakening, and then they commit to living in connection with that, that is an initiation on a psychological level. So I'm suggesting that there can be radical uh, psychological changes and transformations without a clear collective ritual, because I think it's essential and it has to happen, and it's essential uh, for the psyche. So in that sense, um, at least that's the term I'm using now. And then I use initiation of the soul as being more, more connected to, to the awakening of the inner genius and the aim of the soul that it had when it came into the world. And that has to do with unfolding from within the story that each person came to live, which is an initiatory story in my understanding. So I'm just making those two distinctions because I'm with you. If there isn't some way for the collective to transform, then, you know, where the hell are we going? Because yeah. nature is unsettled, if not in greater trouble than that. And culture is upside down. And so all the elements are there for transformation. Um, but culturally, we don't have either conscious rituals 
or the function of elders. Mm. So I think it has to have a psychological level. And then those individuals who, who awaken to the, mm, to the genius in their life, I just call it the genius, which means the spirit of their life, uh, that gives them aim and purpose. And enough people, if enough people are moving on a path which has to do with their genius manifesting, then some of those people will be working in the realms of nature and helping nature find its vitality again. And some of those people will be working in the realm of culture. And by having a whole bunch of people doing that, they don't have to be coordinated per se. Those changes can occur. That's how I'm thinking. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of um, gets me thinking about something else that Robert Moore would talk about in in uh, his lectures back in the 90s that you know the way he viewed it was that we have been living in the age of the magician so an age that's ruled by technology and those that have a mastery over technology and i guess my kind of not so secret hope is that this time if it truly is an initiation is an initiation of the the lover, the age of the lover, uh, bringing forth more of the qualities of appreciation for beauty and the natural world, um, putting more value on in-person, real-life community, um, things like that. So, what do you what do you think if this is a, a global initiation? What what do you think we might be initiating ourselves into? What do you do? You have any ideas about the next age that might be opening up? So I think I think what happens in the liminal phase is people get glimpses of what's trying to happen. People get visions that are actually messages from the future. Once you get into the liminal, mm. so what happens then is the present opens. Yeah. Um, and, and when the present opens, it's like a a river in a sense, you're in the river, only you, you can feel and see backwards, right? Ancient ideas, ancient understandings become more available, but at the same time, messages come from the future. So mm. I think those are both elements of the liminal. Um, and I like the idea of connecting it to love. And then one way to expand that sense, um, it, I, I like the idea of soul a lot. Yeah. Soul is the, the third thing. You have uh, mind and body and soul. Soul is what connects mind and body. It's what connects spirit and matter. Soul is the connective tissue. And so when soul is present, that, a lot of ideas in here. Let me back up a little bit. Each person has a unique soul. Uh, no one will ever live the life you're going to live the life I'm here to live or anyone paying attention to this is here to live. Hopefully there's many, many more people with unique lives, but no one will live our unique life. So the uniqueness of the soul is a person's kind of secret connection to the origins of life, to the source of life, to the soul of the world, because the old idea is nature only makes originals. Mm -hmm. So you can have two cedar trees or a whole forest of them, but none of them are exactly the same. None of the birds or no two ravens are the same. No two humans are the same. That uniqueness is the secret connection um, to the source of life and to the, um, the, the soul of the world, I call it, to that which connects everything together. 
So um, initiation is really the awakening of that um, unique soulful self. But the other reason to look at soul is uh, the, old, the, the old Greek word is eros, erotic. It means love, but it means love by connection. Mm-hmm. And so the, the idea, in a sense, is the whole world is erotic. All aspects of the world are erotically connected to each other. So the more a person feels their own erotic presence and, and seeing erotic as not restricted to sexual or sensual because there's the erotic mm, connection to the beloved, to the transcendent, to the animals, all that kind of stuff, that that would be part of the next era. If the present and the last era is a lot about dividing and separating subject and object, then it could be easily seen that the healing would require a reconnection on a soulful level, even on a molecular level, so that people began to more genuinely feel what is now being said, which is we are all connected. And so once you start to see that as maybe the path we're on, that helps explain social justice movement, Black Lives Matter, Um, The pandemic then becomes a kind of obstacle with purpose, saying, don't you realize you're all breathing the same air? We're all inhaling and exhaling the same things. We are secretly connected. And now we have to learn that. And so in, in the old idea that obstacles are not to stop you, but to awaken you, then I think the uh, COVID pandemic is an obstacle intended to awaken us to the fact that we're all together. And when something is sick over here, it's affecting everything. And that that's a necessary understanding, not intellectually, but soulfully, molecularly, for people to then say, um, well, we can we could find and help shape a world where culture and nature are reconnected, where the individual and the global are connected and where we're all connected. That would seem to be where it's going. Mm. Well, I certainly hope so. And, um, you know, like you said, this whole past 150, 200 years has all been about separating things out, you know, very much uh, that kind of magician process for analysis, you know, and and we've, I think we've got a lot of that stuff covered, you know. (laughs) And, you know, I, I take a lot of heart in thinking about the alchemical idea of the the separating out is always followed by the bringing back together in the reforming of something new and something transformed. So I'm just hoping and trusting that this is part of a, a larger process like that. And, and like you said, the only next step is to come back together with new insights and new knowledge. So the, one of the key things in the new knowledge is self-knowledge. I've been carrying this little phrase around. Um, normal cannot know itself. So when everybody says they want normal, they're talking about ignorance and not knowing. Normal cannot know because normal is not essential enough, not awake enough mm-hmm. to have knowledge in it. It might have comfort in it for some people, but it doesn't have genuine knowledge in it. And so, um, and that to me, points back to the uniqueness of the individual. So in a sense, if we want more love in the world, 
that has to begin with a more genuine genuine way of loving oneself. We can't give love that we don't have. I mean, this is one of the hardest things to realize. And that's why I say there's a psychological dynamic that's essential because most people do not love themselves too much. And a lot of people don't trust themselves because they haven't get, got deepened down enough to find this deeper inner knowing self. And they're kind of stuck with the little self um, or the ego self. Um, and so there's a psychological awakening that I think is part of the collective as well as the individual rite of passage. And you could say that all the hate that's in the world, it actually comes from self-loathing. Mm -hmm. So if you take someone who's radically homophobic, let's just say that. And the word homophobic literally means fear of humanity. Homophobic. Phobic is fear. Homo is actually a refer reference to human. Mm -hmm. So the source of hating someone in a homophobic way is fear of being human. And the fear of being human it is... Um, I'm afraid I might be that person or I'm afraid that, that person can't understand me. And so somehow we have to get past that. And so there seems to me two radical understandings have to be present. One is there is a deeper self in me and I can hear Robert Moore speaking, you know, we work together and I can hear his voice saying, stirring the great self within. That would be the phrase yeah. that he used in good Jungian style. <laughs> and, uh, and so, so one way to find more acceptance of oneself, more love of oneself, less anxiety about oneself, and less fear is to find this great self within, which is the natural inheritance of every human person. And then that leads to more love of oneself. And the, but the other thing that's required in terms to have a meaningful acceptance and love of oneself is working through whatever the early life issues are, um, which usually go back to mom and dad and all the usual psychological things. Because even in traditional rites of passage and initiation, you could say two things are trying to be accomplished, especially in youth initiation, which would be universal throughout the world at one time. It existed as rituals. There were two things trying to happen. One, awaken each young person, girl or boy, to who they already are inside. Awaken them. Yes, they're someone's child, but that's only part of their life. You know, yes, they're a member of a tribe, but they're actually they're this deep self that is connected to the soul of the world. You know, because tribal groups understood that each person was connected to nature. So that would be awakening of that. That would be part of the function of initiation of young people. But the second part would be to begin the healing in the life of that young person, because people living in tribal situations would actually know how the younger people are wounded. You know, imagine our, you know, we're adults in a, in a small tribe of people and here comes so-and-so who's the child of this family. Well, we know the mom and dad, we know the grandma and we know what's going on in that family because every family has its fate and every family has its psychological struggles and every child no child ever gets completely what they need from their family. And so part of the process of the middle step of initiation is awakening to the deep self and beginning to heal the wounds that everybody carries. And so this idea of the healing the wounds part is essential 
to the loving part, I would say. Yeah. You know, I think, um, you know, in, in my work with other people and in my own work, healing work over the past decade or so, where I'm at with it now is that that awakening to the great self within, and I can hear Robert Moore's voice right now, the great self within, you know, a little Texas accent. Yeah. That, that actually is essential to healing the wounds from childhood and the family and the culture and all of that, that the real healing can't happen. Otherwise it's kind of like just symptom management, you know? Yeah. There has to be. So I think of it as layers and I think of it as descent because it's going down deeper into the psyche. And, you know, one of the things about living in modern culture, modern culture is quite superficial. Everything's connected, but it's horizontal. The, the internet, the World Wide Web is all horizontal. It lacks vertical uh, imagination. It, it, it lacks a connection to spirit, which would be vertically up, and a connection to soul, which is vert- vertically down. But usually the initiatory process goes down first because the more soul a person has, the more spirit they can handle. The more depth a person has, the more the heights of excitement and spiritual movement can be used or be understood and be and, and, and can be present without doing damage. Right. And like so the, that going the, down. The deeper the roots, the higher that oak tree can grow. Something like that. Exactly. And the more it can branch out and the more it can blossom and produce seeds. And oak trees produce thousands of acorns. And each acorn is a tree, mm-hmm. a tree inside a shell. And so the old idea of the oak tree, the acorn, was the ancient theory for how each person was a unique self because the the one oak tree will produce thousands and th- over a, over years an oak tree will produce millions of acorns and each one will grow into an acorn but each one is different from the original tree and so that was their image for how how a human was unique but connected to the great tree of life um but you only can a tr- uh, an acorn can only grow when it's in the ground, when it falls from the tree and goes into the soil and into darkness and gets nourished by the darkness, and then it comes out as a tree. So descent was always the first de- meaningful step of transformation or initiatory change. So then if you imagine a kind of a system of going down, so first you have the ego, which likes to pretend it knows who we are and what we're doing, but it's really scared scared to death, especially now that the world is rattled and changing. So then when you drop down, you don't go right to the deep self where everybody would just go there and we wouldn't even have this conversation. We'd, <laughs> We'd all be yogis and caves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or, or yogis dancing <laughs> yeah. or all kinds of possibilities. Uh, but when you go down, what you hit is the, the wounded areas that the ego is trying, trying to protect us from feeling, let's say, and so then you have to go down into those wounds and, and kind of at the depth of the wounds, you find what I think of as an area of self-loathing where I just, I just can't stand myself because I know what I've done wrong or I know how it feels to be bad, whatever it is. Everybody has their own arrangement. Um, and then below that is the deep unifying self, which is also called the soul sometimes. The two, two words can be interchangeable. 
And so the idea is everybody's supposed to get, well, one old idea is everybody gets at least one experience of the inner unifying self or they're not human. And it usually happens by the time you're about 20 years of age. It's such a forgotten idea that even though people have it, they overlook it or didn't fully get it. But it's there for everyone. And so um, so the going down goes through uh, the dark night of the soul, uh, the night sea journey, where, where all the terrors and all the fears and all the anxieties and all the guilt and all the self-recrimination has to be experienced and become more conscious. And it's only tolerable if we understand that when we get to the bottom or the center, they're the same thing. When we get there, then we connect to this great self within, which then makes our individual story, our own life journey, our own rite of passage becomes more possible. So that when we leave from the descent, we're on the road we're supposed to be on. Because the soul, according to all the old cultures, the soul is aimed. Mm -hmm. And so, but we can't find that aim you can't find it casually. Most people don't know why they're alive. Um, but once a person finds the cracking open of this acorn shell that fell from the tree of life and it was inside each person, and when a person finds it and it cracks open, it's like, I get it. I know why I'm here. I have some sense of it. And that gives me aim and purpose and direction. And that's the initiatory path. Hmm. Yeah, it's the the way you're kind of laying this out too. Um, it's such a great reflection of what's going on externally with the separation, the liminality, and the return um, that's mirrored on this interior process that's happening, where the ego's got to break off or die off or relax or get quiet for a while in order to realize that ooh there's something else here too. And then there needs to be a reconnection to it in a, in a healthy way. That's like the ego is always listening for those prompts from the soul in order to follow the right path in life. Cause the soul knows, but we got to be really in contact with it and, and listening all the time. And sometimes the prompts are quite subtle and sometimes they're stronger right? There's no denying you're just getting like shoved along your path and into scary places, right? So I love that, that uh, how you're bringing that together, that what's happening in the world, looking at that as an initiatory process and calling that out so that people can actually pay attention to it and engage with it consciously and, and also have some comfort that, okay, this time of liminality and confusion and all of that, that's not going to last, but we have to like do something about that return. We have to acknowledge what's happened and um, get a sense of how things want to be. And that's also happening for us each individually. And if it's happening individually, we're going to be able to support that communal process more. That's great. So we've worked on, and I say we because I'm referring to Mosaic. That's the nonprofit we have. And it's also where we've done initiatory work for almost 40 years. Uh, we don't call it that in public because that can get tangled up in people's ideas and pretensions, mm. but that's what we actually have been working on for um, about 40 years. Um, and so uh, part, part of that has led us to realize, all right, so in working with all kinds of people in retreats and conferences where we're doing deep work, 
I'll ask, you know, how many people have had a separation experience? You know, hands go up. Sometimes two hands go up. You know, people are saying, how, how many you want to hear about? You know, <laughs> I, I, never, I, I, I was abandoned as a child or I became an addict at 17. Everybody has their story of separation. Mm. How many have been through ordeals? Everybody's going, you know, I have, you know, uh, you know. So how many have been received after those experiences by a conscious knowing community that understands what you've been through and understands what it means and, and what it takes to be reconnected to the sense of a collective, meaningful human body? And you, you'll see very few hands go up mm. uh, because we're in that modern world which everything is separated and people I've identified with ideologies and collective ideas like nations, parties, sports teams, all of those are substitutes for community. So we started to use the idea of sudden community. And that is to say, the people that you're working with at a given time, if there's enough honesty, enough genuineness uh, and a sense of trust, that becomes the community. And we call it sudden because it can convene all of a sudden because of a crisis or an opportunity. And then also sudden implies it's not going to remain. You get certain things done in a certain setting with people who are there together, and then life pulls people back apart because that is the part of the collective phase we're living through. So I hope that makes sense. And so yeah. that means that, so that, and that came about because we were working with all these young people who were going through life and death experiences all the time. And we could get them, help them find, oh my goodness, I get it. I'm in this separated world. I'm not part of the community. I'm not, I've been in prison. I've been in an addict, whatever. And then they would go, yeah, it's been an ordeal ever since I was a kid. And, and we're working through that. And then they have to have a community that sees and accepts them. So whoever's present, becomes the community for them. And we would form rituals around their pain, their transformation, and our own um, sudden temporary community. And I can say that that works to a degree. Hmm. So if we're thinking in terms of the future, it's not as if we have to get a culturally cohesive uh, you know, humanity. We just have to get groups of people who are awake individually and mutually connected, at least for a period of time, enough for each of us to find a kind of deeper sense of home and dwelling, and also a sense of blessing and confirmation, which is part of the healing process. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's how I see it. Yeah. Yeah. When you're describing the sudden community, and I, I love that because it means that the opportunity for that is, is everywhere all the time. Like, you know, where, where two of us gather, there I am kind of thing, right? And I'm yeah. thinking about um, Victor Turner's idea of what else is essential in the second stage. And he talked about something he called communitas, which is this... Communitas. Uh, communitas, yeah. Where, like what you said, what's essential is that we leave our egos at the door, Right. And it's like why everyone gets on their knees to go into the sweat lodge. It's like it's a great equalizer. And so that feeling of uh, putting aside social roles and status and really finding a spirit of equality that we're all in this together um, 
that that's really important. Um, and that's one of the things that I'm struggling with in, in this time is because I do see a lot of division, a lot of egos fighting each other, fighting other ideologies. And what I'm trying to do is to create sudden communities on the local level. Um, like what you said, just gather a small group of people together for a certain amount of time, uh, have a nice, nicely held container or good enough container, you know, the best that we can do or I can do <laughs> as a, you know, a very young elder <laughs> of a kind. Um, and I think, you know, that's where I'm kind of going with everything is like really feet on the ground, local community, small groups, do what we can with what we've got in the current time. So yeah. how have you, I mean, this has been um, a really restrictive time for a lot of us, uh, but especially those who are used to teaching and leading groups and things like that. So how have you been trying to create those sudden communities in this time? Or is that something that can only happen when we're in person, do you think? Hmm, that's a really good question. I want to go back for a minute. I'll try to hold on to that question. So Victor Turner's work is really important. And, and he's the one that picks up the idea of liminality betwixt and between, and he marries it to communitas. Mm -hmm. So these two things are like deeply related ideas. First of all, we get into the betwixt and between, and we don't know. We have to admit we don't know. This is the key to awakening. As long as we think we know, we're not changing. That's the ego is in charge. Yeah. Not knowing is the first re requisite for going into therapy or for really entering initiation. I don't know. I want to be initiated to a greater sense of knowledge. And then Turner com combines that with communitas. And that's an old Latin word. Um, and, and community nowadays for many people would mean those who live near each other. Yeah. Well, that's that surface thing again. Communitas means something so deep happens, it pulls people together. So that's the first idea that I have about sudden community. It has to be something deep enough that people will let go of their egos and their angles and their fears and allow that deep sense of self to bring everybody together. But it has to be deep. And so I'm totally with you. Local is one part of it. Also, um, mutually focused. So um, whatever a person, when a person gets pulled onto what I call a genius path, they're going to be in search of and learning certain things. For some people, it's going to be into nature and people are learning literally some kind of forms of therapy or body work. Mm -hmm. And other people are learning, you know, how to help people die, which is something coming back into awareness. And other people are going to be pulled into nature because that's where their genius goes. And they're going to be working with, with mycology and mushroom life, which is a big healing energy in the world waiting to be understood and so on. And so it's in those areas of mutual interest where people are on similar roads. That's one of the places where you can form a certain community. So there are all kinds of groups going through experiences that are collective and individual where you can realize, wow, look at so-and-so, they're transforming, or we're all feeling a little bit of healing. And what's usually missing is uh, a confidence in, a feeling for, and a trust in ritual. Hmm. And so part of sudden community is you can turn almost anything meaningful into a ritual. But I want to underline meaningful. Mm -hmm. If people are bullshitting or 
or they're in it for the ego, you mentioned a sweat lodge, one of the oldest rituals in North America, or actually it's universal because the Irish had it, their yeah. own version of it, obviously Northern Europeans do, but so did you know, the Siberians. And so the idea is you're going down on the earth, as you said, you have to let go of the idea that you know what you're doing and you're in charge, you have to go down. You also go into that heated container, which is the womb, so you're really going in and becoming an infant and through the ritual process, you're getting some healing and some awakening and then you're reborn when you come out of that sweat lodge. That's why you crawl out is because you've just been born. Yeah. So that well, core just, idea. Yeah. Just, I love that though. Just to pause there. Uh, another Robert Mooreism, the tomb of the womb, you know, pointing to this warm, dark enclosure where you go to die and be reborn. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and the essence of all transformation and all initiation is dying and rebirth. Um, so if you keep those things in mind, then anyone, uh, well, let me also say this, um, there's what I call bone memory. There are memories in the bones that we inherit as being humans. And part of the bone memory system includes instincts for ritual. And so if people don't think of ritual as something that's prescribed, right, which I call fixed ceremony, like here's the way you do it, you have to do it this way. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's not a healing ceremony, typically speaking, because even a sweat lodge, which may have a description and a process, but what actually happens in there is determined by the grandfather coals and, and the rocks that go in and the songs people sing. And really it depends on how much honesty gets sweated out. Yeah. That's when the, the lodge becomes a real the sweat con lodge. The, con the confession's got to be spontaneous. Like you got to be on the edge of death and just crying out, right? And that tells you the essence of sudden community. Yeah. So as soon as it starts to feel like someone's running an agenda, as soon as it starts to feel like every people are pretending they know the outcome, uh, then you're not in a ritual anymore. Well, you are in a ritual, but it's more like a fixed ceremony. I call it radical ritual. You might know step one and step two, and after that, it's not determined, it's up to spirit. That's what they would say in Africa. You're trying to lure spirit in. And, and then if you know the outcome, it's kind of like, why go? If you know the score that's going to be there in the end, why go to the game? The, so, so there's this kind of requirement to trust something beyond ourselves. And we're back to the great self. We're back to the soul of the world. We're back to the healing level of nature. Uh, but everybody can figure those first two steps out. And the one thing I would caution about, it has to be genuine. It has to be authentic is a, a good word. And so if you're in it, and something starts to sound off, I think there's a requirement to say, excuse me, I didn't understand that. That seemed, are you sure that's what you meant to say? Because it seemed, and then you have to. Yeah. Or, yeah, I think for me, some good indicators are when it feels uh, too neat and tidy, when it feels yeah. scripted, like when the person leading the ritual sounds like they're reciting a script. And it feels like it's not in congruence with what's actually happening in that space. So what I'm always thinking about 
you know, as I lead circles or facilitate them, because I'm not actually leading, but I'm helping to create the container in which that third element can enter and really work through us as like, I think of it like becoming a hollow bone. So I try to leave my agenda, everything I think I know at the door. That's part of my ritual when I enter the space. Um, yeah. Anything about, um, you know, do you think that there are some essentials to creating a, a good solid container that can really open us up to that liminality and communitas? I'll try and say something about that. I want to go back to the leader facilitator issue. Yeah. So we started out talking about the elder, you brought up the elder. So one of the jobs of the elders is to cut through the bullshit, right? In, in Africa, they have a saying that if a person can't curse you, then they can't bless you. And that means they can't be an <laughs> elder, yeah. right? You get a blessing from someone who can't hurt you, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It has to be you're dealing with aspects of oneself and others that is so intense that it could cut right through you, but it's blessing you. Why? Because you're showing up authentically. So, uh, and I get the idea about facilitating, and I understand why people are using that word even because it means less ego. But the trouble with, for me, with if it's just facilitating, the word facile is there. And facile easy. can mean slippery and tricky <laughs> and easy and, and facile. Yeah. So, so there are times when leadership is required. Mm -hmm. And I would say this about therapy too, because therapy is very simple, similar to the steps of initiation. You bow your head to go into a therapist and you say, something's wrong with me. I don't get it. Things are going wrong. I'm bowing down in hopes that you know better. That puts that person in a ritual leadership position as well. And they can't simply facilitate or the person won't get the therapy they need. So there are moments I've been in sweat lodges. I don't do sweat lodges much anymore. But when we were first working with at-risk youth, they were such a great, you know, ritual to use. And, and some of us had worked with various um, native elders. In other words, we didn't take it off the internet. Um, but we there was so much conflict in the sweat lodges because people would come in with an agenda. And and what's happening, I mean, we're in there with youth who could live or die the next day. It's really life and death circumstances. That's why we're doing it. And in many cases, we're multicultural. We have kids from gangs, adults from the hood. We have Native people. We also have Anglo people who are not parts of those things per se. And we're all in the same sweat lodge. And authenticity is the key. Like you say, it has to be real confession. The pain has to come out. And, and so I'd be in there like everybody else trying to be human, trying to, but, <laughs> but you do have responsibilities if you're part of the shaping the ritual or as you're calling it, making the container. And if something rings false, we're in there with young people. This could be the difference between life and death for them. Yeah, I call it out. Yeah. That that's I think where it does become like leadership, like saying, okay, we just want to stop for a minute because we're in here, we're trying to deal with our own pain and each other's pain. We're trusting something greater than ourselves. And so if we get something in here that is too much of ourselves, then what could be medicine can get toxic. I just want to, before we go on, come back to you because you said this thing and it seemed a little like performance to me. Mm. And I know you didn't come here for that. 
And so you don't have to attack them. You just have to call to them in genuine and give a chance. You, you, you get what I'm saying? Oh, to- totally. Yeah. And I, I really feel that. And I, I use the term facilitating because, yeah, I guess it's it's uh, feels less egoic. And it's just, I think, a matter of perception that we have with words. If I'm going to come out and say, I'm going to lead this ritual, it doesn't maybe acknowledge how I feel inside that I'm also being led in the leading of the ritual. Um, so right. I just use that term as a way to, like, I'm I'm there yeah. to support the process, right? Um, not no, to make, I totally get you. Yeah, I get you yeah. too, but it's got but me. I'm adding, I, I like the nuance. I, I like the nuance, actually. Yeah. And um, when I'm in that role, what I've gotten more and more comfortable with as I get older and more experienced and trusting that process more and trusting the third element that comes in. And if I'm truly a hollow bone, I don't know what's going to come out of my mouth a lot of times. And um, what will happen is I, I hear trickster coming through me and, uh, you know, calling things out usually with a, a little bit of humor, but sometimes with so, yeah. like kind of pushing people to really get down into the reality of their experience rather than just kind of tell a pretty story after, you know, our shamanic journey or something, you know? Yeah. No, we're saying the same thing. Yeah. And a person has to find their own style. So the first, the first person I learned sweat lodge from native American elder, he was a totally funny guy. He was, he was a hilarious guy. And so he always did it with humor. So someone comes in there who's, you know, big chested and puffed up, <laughs> sings a big song and, and, and then says, I'm here to, you know, uh, to get blessed by the answers, whatever. And it's all pretense, you know. And so then this native elder, his style would be to say, oh, OK, oh, we have to stop for a minute. We'll need at least one more song <laughs> because we hear what you're saying. Your wounds are so big that they come in here like a whole bird of, bird of buffaloes. Everybody's feeling like we're getting trampled by the wound you're bringing in. So we thank you for bringing the wound in. And now we're going to sing to you and hope that you'll start crying pretty soon so the rest of it can be present. Wow. Oh, <laughs> and then he'd lead a song or something. So, so what I mean by authentic is not pretentious at all, but, but a person has to come from who they are. And so I love that you brought in the trickster. For some people, it might be pretty direct. For some people, it would be humor. Because all the time, you're trying to feel the alchemy of what's in there. Yeah. It's, it's an alchemical uh, heat process. The heat is needed to transform. And one reason people can't initiate themselves um, is because they can't regulate the heat. Oh, they either it, make it too cold or too hot. Yeah, that frog's never going to reach outside the pot and turn, crank up the heat as it boils slowly, right? It's just going to be like in that lukewarm water, pretty content. It's like, hmm, yeah, this is hot enough. I'm, I'm transforming. <laughs> yeah. So what happened to me actually early on, trying to learn, just being part of it, trying to be present, trying to be present with my own wounds, be uh, you know, compassionate to other people, whatever they're going through, all the things you're doing there that are wonderful. But then something wasn't quite right. And we go out and then afterwards, everybody's talking and saying, well, this was wrong. Or did you hear that? I, it, what I would say is no, deal with it inside the sweat lodge. You can cook anything in there mm. because the danger is this. It's like pottery. Whatever you cook is what you're going to live with for the next two months, let's say. So if there's some bullshit in there or something not genuine in there, you're going to live with it for two months. And so it really, so sometimes the person who's leading on that occasion, that's some, some groups I've been with say that, well, I'm leading today. 
So make it clear that I'm not like some great leader. That's not the point. But everybody has leadership in them. Yeah. And and if those leadership moments don't become initiated and get confirmed, then we wind up back in culture where the wrong people are leading. Literally now, they elect the long the wrong people all the time. Yeah. And so th- those things need to be transformed and and be blessed too. But uh, anyway, I just I wasn't just accusing you of misusing the word. I'm really referring to something that's happening in the culture. And since modern Western cultures are ego driven. Naturally, anybody being genuine is um, doesn't want to be caught in that ego position. But there's something other than ego, which is you started out talking about the elder. And when the elder is present, and I don't think the elder is a person, I think it's a, a condition. Just the way youth isn't a person, youth is a condition, so is the elder. And so that elder can come up in anybody that's sitting in the circle or sitting in the sweat lodge. And I've certainly heard someone who was in no way in a responsible position just go, excuse me, I I, I was about to make my prayer, but I can't go on. What you said, uh, uh, I didn't feel it. Yeah. Can you help me? Can you say more so that when it comes to me, the doors are still open? I mean, I've heard people do that. Mm. And so that leadership doesn't mean you're in charge. That's the false presentation of it in the culture that we're all worried about. So anyway, I just wanted to pick that up. Because whether it's ritual or sudden community, conflict has to be dealt with at some point. If conflict can't be dealt with, it will never go deep enough. And you can't predict the conflict. And so there has to be this mm, willingness to be in the heat, which is what the sweat lodge is, the literal ritual of putting everybody in the heat in order to melt the ego, in order to melt the fixed attitude in order to melt the defenses. And sometimes that melting needs a little guidance from whoever uh, is feeling it the strongest or whoever is having a leadership moment. I don't know if that helps. Yeah, no, it really does, it really does. And I, I like that you pointed out that sometimes the leadership comes from you know someone who's there as a participant. And I found that too, if I, if I go in humble and open, really, you know, I don't have to come with all of this like wisdom I want to impart or anything like that because I trust that the wisdom's going to come out of the group. If if I open up that space in a good way, everyone's going to feel comfortable enough to speak from the heart. And if they're doing that, they're all speaking from the same source that I'd be speaking from anyway. And uh, it's been really amazing to me over the years to to see that and then to trust that it's also helped me to like kind of relax my feelings around holding that role. You know, it's like, it's not all on my shoulders to bring the wisdom, you know, if it was, we'd all be in trouble. But if I open it up in that communitas kind of way, where we're all on the same level, we all have, you know, potential access to that same source, you know, the eternal spring of wisdom that's bubbling around inside of us that it's going to come out one way or the other. Two tricky things. Someone has to set the container. You actually brought that idea up. That's taking on more responsibility than the others. Yeah. That's an aspect of leadership. Another thing I would say is if there's no vision, there's no leadership. Mm-hmm. So positional authority is irrelevant. Um, so, so whoever's setting it up, Um, This is coming from this old native elder I worked with. He said, uh, 
the the sweat lodge is the same every time. We always put the doorway here. We always put the fire in the middle. Everything's the same, he said. But And you learn it really carefully when we do it this time because it'll never be this way again. And everybody's <laughs> going, what? what? And he was saying, it's the same, but it's not the same. Yeah. So then he, he was telling me, he said, you see and feel everybody coming in. Before people speak, you already felt them. You have an idea of what's there. And so then you might do your shaping a little different. Or for instance, if you go in a more African style, um, we don't know what song comes first because um, spirit's going to guide which song. And so you're in this position of, I know a little something, but I'm not presentious to know more than spirit. And so I want to go back to the idea of in radical ritual, you know some of the steps, but you know that you don't know what's going to happen this time. And so in West Africa, for instance, they would say, now you're going to lure spirit. Mm. And you can't lure spirit by something that's fixed because spirit's not interested. If it's fixed, why bother to show up? So it has to have this open end. So I think the mm. leadership issues, not egotistical, I'm in charge issues, but uh, the, the sense, the smell, the feeling for how it gets set up this mm. time, and really watching for what happens. I mean, if you really want to be there, you know, and an owl comes through right while you're setting up in the daylight, yeah. something is it. trying to be <laughs> something's trying to be delivered. Yeah. And if something someone comes in and you can feel that they're on the edge of anger, that is like another visitation. Those things get picked up and they get worked in with the more familiar steps. So that's one part. And then the other part, I think, is when it feels like something's going wrong because you cook, everybody will get cooked the wrong way. It'll affect everybody. And so, I mean, I've been in a sweat lodge where there were two native leaders from two different traditions. And they actually had a spirit fight inside the sweat lodge. Mm. And we had brought in all these gang kids who were having their first experience and were taking a radical risk. I don't mean just the risk of getting hot, because the sweat lodge was in a neighborhood that was so dangerous for them, we had to come in at night with cars with no headlights. Because oh. if anybody gets seen, they'd be shot on sight. But that's where the sweat lodge was. And so they have risked their life to get there. And then inside the sweat lodge, something that is not authentic is going on. You can't do that. They've no. been betrayed by culture their whole lives. You can't betray them again. So something has to stop that process. And it doesn't have to be brutal or arrogant. It's, excuse me, I think something's feeling like the wrong kind of tension in here. And, and then, so that has a little bit of a leadership quality in the sense that you're going to take the step in. Yeah. Which is also the definition of initiation. Yeah. Take a yeah. And I think you need to have been uh, cooked long enough in your own alchemical fires to not be afraid to turn up the heat a little bit, right? Yes, which is literally the job of the person calling at the door, yeah. facilitating the sweat lodge. Another grandfather, not hot enough yet. And so then you just see the grandfathers as happening on more than one level. Yeah. So the psychological grandfathers that have to be called in. And someone might do that with humor. And someone else might say, I know that there are young people in this sweat lodge who could die tonight or die tomorrow because they're on the edge of life and death. 
And so I feel strongly that whatever we do in here has to be authentic so they can have an authentic experience of their own soul and their own spirit. Can we agree to that? You know, and, and if you say that at the right time and you, you pick your tone based on what's going on, then that's often enough. It doesn't have to be corrective. It could be going back to the idea we're all in this together. But could, could we agree right now that we want to be authentically here, painfully here? Because we could be sacrificing a young person. Hmm. Well, thanks for all that. It's it's uh, really helpful to me as someone who's, you know, stepped into that role. You know, kind of, I don't know, hesitant leader because I haven't always had elders around to consult with, you know, or to observe and let me know how I'm doing. So I'm just I, I got to trust I got to trust spirit a lot and. Uh, you know, listen to people afterwards to see if it actually had some some impact in their life, right? And then adjust accordingly. But it's hard without that guidance, I got to say. Yeah. So what we do, part of the mosaic process and the sudden community process, is afterwards we have a very serious review, which can almost be as heated as a sweat lodge in the sense that we go right into it. And so let's say I was the leader of part of what was going on, then I will know what the tricky moments were, what the contentious moments were. And I'll ask, how did I do? Did I handle that right? Did I bring the right energy to it? Did it help the changing, transforming quality? And everybody else has something to say too. And so then everybody's going through a, a real reflective process so that we're all learning and we're all getting more confirmation for how to do things. Because his, his, if, you know, at the beginning we were talking about the elder and I was talking about the collective rite of passage. So let's say that we're lucky and let's say that we're courageous and let's say that we get a lot of help from spirit and the animals and, and the soul of the world. Yeah. And we find a way towards a new cultural uh, agreement, a new, a new style, a new way of being together. And it, and it is improved and it has healing in it. But it's not going to include everybody. It won't happen that way. There are people who will not let go yeah. because they're afraid to whatever, whatever. So what happens when we run into them? And if, and if if we don't have enough strength to figure out, because eventually what happens is the outside becomes the sweat lodge. Really, any mm. almost moment in life can be opened up for knowledge and insight, but it also can open on its own. Like nowadays, look at all the arguments over masks and all that kind of stuff. There's so much tension, so much opposition, so much uh, unaimed fire in the air. Yeah. And if you become a change agent, you're going to run into people that instinctively are afraid of you. And when people are afraid, they attack. And so, I mean, I've been in, in a number of situations where the ritual became under attack. Hmm. And, and so if you think of the container as a safe place, like a sweat lodge, and then someone attacks it, and, and you're responsible to some degree, you have to be able to fend off that attack. I've been there. And mm -hmm. you have to have, and like you're saying, you don't want to then become your ad adversary. You don't become violent or attacking. You have to have moves. And some of them have to be trickster moves if it involves authorities like police. And some of it have to be more sincerity or you have to know in the moment what to do. I've been there a number of times. And so that's another thing to learn too. And then that's preparation 
for them taking deep, meaningful things, ritual knowledge, esoteric ideas back into culture. But when the attack comes, you have some experience in how to keep, still keep protecting yeah. the, the essence and the sacredness and the people. Yeah, I like that. You got to have a few different moves. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you got to like really yeah. stand your ground and be quite firm. <clears throat> Bring some of that, you know, Saturn Senex energy. You know, like conjure up the inner elder. <laughs> and that's the hardest thing for me. You know, I'm I'm pretty good with like the trickster and you know open heart conversation to find connection, but <clears throat> that's the hardest thing for me to access. Really, is that. Uh, confrontational mode. Um, so this is actually something that uh, comes to mind to ask you about. So when we're out in the world and we're kind of seeing all these opportunities for transformation in the world, because there's a lot of conflict, we're rubbing up against each other now and, and boundaries and all that. And there's real opportunity for, you know, for awakening and eye opening and, and connection on a deeper level. Um, but often it, it might involve confrontation. And so as someone who is like conflict adverse because of my own childhood wounds, um, that's something I often, you know, and I've been sitting with it more and thinking about, you know, I used to think like, okay, in order to grow, you got to like face every confrontation that's made available to you. Like the universe is bringing you this person so that you can confront them and gather up that strength and courage to do it. And that's how you need to heal and grow. And lately, though, I've been thinking more about like energy management, especially as I age and thinking that maybe the best way now is to actually um, cultivate discernment about which conflict is worthwhile confronting and which ones aren't. And that's a that's a hard thing for me sometimes, you know, because I want to make sure that I'm not just backing down because that's kind of my avoidance of conflict happening. Or if it's really, you know, this this is not quite worth it. This is just going to drain my energy. And I need that energy for all the things that I want to fight for rather than spending it fighting against something. You follow? Yeah. So I wonder, like, like if, if you have any guidance around that, like how to know, like, which battles to take on. No, I think it's a really good question. I mean, the whole internet needs to learn that, really. <laughs> There's a talk about waste of energy. There's huge amounts of energy, human energy, that could go into healing that's being wasted on mindless mutual wounding. So it's, that's another signal of how far things have gone out of balance. Um, so what it made me think of is where I've learned, you know, I grew up kind of rough New York neighborhood where you did have to be able to defend yourself in a moment, in a situation that had no meaning, except you want to survive it. That was common. And so, so that's not the best training ground. Um, so it, it has been a training for me to understand what is worthwhile standing up for. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think one way that I look at it is, is if I'm even close to, the path I'm supposed to be on because it's going to be uh, a way of growing and uh, learning and giving for me, then I'm more likely to encounter, I'm more likely to make that distinction quickly. Uh, like things that used to be 
um, public things that could be quite challenging to me or where I would want to correct something or, or, or it doesn't happen as much now. And what I really learned is in doing these kind of sudden community events and ritual events where people have trusted the situation and they're now vulnerable and some energy from within the group or without the group is now endangering them and, and, and me too, then those are places I know, no, I have to make a move here and I have to trust uh, myself and trust the unseen is going to give me some knowledge. That's been a huge learning for me. We were doing a ritual once back in, in uh, um, during the, uh, the first Gulf War. It was a grief walk with several thousand people in Washington, D.C. At, at night, beginning in the evening, going into the night. And our, our goal was to go to the Vietnam Memorial Wall and have this grief ritual for all of the wars. Hmm. And we didn't know that there's a federal law against any ritual behavior at the Vietnam Memorial Wall. Wow. So here, here we are coming down through the streets of D.C., two to 3,000 people, each carrying a candle, and we're all singing a chant, which, you know, I had talked to everybody, and we run into a whole bunch of police motor motorcycles. And they say, you can't come here. It's not allowed. I said, what's not allowed? No ritual whatsoever. You can't bring candles. And so I'm, I don't know what to do. The New York parts of me wants to argue and fight. Another part of me wants to run as fast as I can and get out of there because I'm at the front of this thing. But something in me said, okay. And so I just said, turned to people and said, blow out the candles. Because he had said, you can't bring candles. So we blew out the candles. And people are still singing. And this is all happening in this kind of intense huddle with cops. And they're saying, singing and chanting is against the federal laws. And so I turned around and said, tell everybody to start humming. And so, and the guys watching me, these cops are watching me and they're going, this is pretty interesting. And, and I said, can we go ahead now? He said, no, there's a federal law. Everybody can only go single file. There's no crowds allowed here. I just turned around and say, everybody go single file. And I'm, I'm looking at them and I'm saying, what's next? Keep giving us a rule because and finally, they said, man, OK, go ahead. Mm. And so what happened is as people came down uh, into the wall area, they stopped humming and the candles got blown out and everything went dark. And then as you come out the other side, I just said that the first couple of people start lighting the candles when they come out and turn the song back on. And so anybody watching would see thousands of oh. people go and the lights going out and it's yeah. going out and the, and the Vietnam wall is down. It's, yeah. it's a descent yeah. thing that was really brilliant by the, the woman who created it. And so it's all going into darkness and all you hear is humming of a couple of thousand people. And then the light comes back on and everybody's coming out and the song's getting bigger. And now the cops are there waiting with their motorcycles and the leaders of the cops said to me, where do you want to go now? Wow. And they said, they said, point a direction will lead the way. And so there was a hill and they took their motorcycles and they became the front of the ritual. And we got up on the hill and we sang up there and the cops joined in. And I learned from things like that. Oh, I man. can, yeah, I have a, like Irish temperament, so I can get involved and <laughs> embroiled in things, but you don't want to ruin such a beautiful thing that was trying to happen. 
And, and so, and, and I mean, that cop couldn't have designed the ritual more elegantly. You know, he made yeah. the ritual better. And because yeah. you, you kind of, you didn't get into that confrontation mode. It was more of like, your move was more like a jujitsu move. Like, okay, this is where the leverage is. Oh, okay. I'll move with it. What, what next? Yeah. What next? And then he told you how to do the ritual better. Like that is just the perfect example of being in that space of leader, not leader. Right. Yeah. And, and the idea, what happened to me was I felt if there wasn't public grief at the time when bombs are being dropped for reasons that are going to turn out to be misleading, blah, blah, blah. And if there isn't grief for that on the part of the people who are enabling it in a sense, then even more damage is being done. And so I just kept that. That's where my, my imagination and even my will was. Yeah. That so we're that, gonna do a ritual. We're yeah. gonna do a ritual. No matter what. And so that's the vision that you're talking about that's a requirement of the the ritual leader. To have that vision and to be uh in service to the higher value, whatever that is, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then and then honestly you wanna have people with you where you can turn and say, Is this making sense or am I losing my mind? <laughs> you know, and 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 but you can you because remember, at the essence of it is transformation. Yeah. So you you can transform in almost any circumstance if if you're tuned in and 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 whatever else, you know. And and once it becomes literally dangerous, then that's something else. Then that's a different kind of. It's actually a different kind of ritual, believe it or not. Hmm. But um, so yeah. So I think whatever we're trying to learn now in this liminal period, which is also the experiment with communitas period, is gonna be tested on the way back, on the, well, on the way forward, which is also, it's the way forward, but it's the way back to human community. And it's gonna be tested, just as we see how rigid and how angry and how revengeful and how, um, how many people are caught up in hate and revenge and, and, and you know, that stuff's going to get encountered at certain along the way. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of radical learning that I think is, um, so I think it has to do with bone memory and trusting, not that we know where the ritual is going, but we know where it could go. And then leaving room, as you said, you know, for spirit to come in and guide as well. And so, you know, there was some guidance from unseen forces on that day also. You know, and we actually got to do the whole thing that was completely illegal. It was against (laughs) federal law. It was brilliant. You know, and and afterwards, you know it. You know, people at the way back of this procession had no idea what happened up front. They thought this was the plan. They thought, you know, you could hear people say, that was so great. The way, you know, everything the went The descent into darkness and, yeah, silence. <laughs> You're going, yeah, you know, it's a good plan. Because <laughs> so, that's the other thing about ritual, and that's true of a sweat lodge or any kind of uh, healing event. No one sees all of it. There's too much actually happening. By the time it's really happening, there's too many things happening and no one sees all of it. But it does remind me of an old tribal thing which is the ritual isn't over until it's been talked about. 
Hmm. And that doesn't mean chatted about. That means going back over the deep parts and so on. Hmm. But this is all in the bones, I think. So it's yeah. waiting to get remembered, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you're doing that, the only word I can think to use, and I don't know if there's some black humor in this, but the, the post-mortem after the ritual, you know, just thinking that yeah. anyway, death is part of every ritual. So it's kind of a post-mortem, but when you're doing that, are you doing that with um, kind of participants or do you have some people who are apprenticing with you, who you're consulting with? Is it open to everyone to provide feedback or what? It depends. I mean, sometimes, sometimes we actually have to do the post-mortem in the middle. I mean, to be honest, sometimes, especially if you have really diverse people present, issues that come up that no one knows anything what to do about it. And so then we go into that process in the middle. And, and, and then everybody can contribute to that. So I think what we wound up doing ourselves in retreats, where we're usually like 100 people, um, is we're doing postmortems along the way. Like we do little rituals. Um, we're aiming maybe towards a big ritual, but we do little rituals to get present, to get connected to the nature that's there, uh, to, to allow conflict to come out. And then we'll do a review of those, which includes more and more people involved having insights and, and getting a better understanding of what we are there for. Um, and, but often the, the bigger ritual, because of modern circumstances, sudden community, people have flights to catch people. And so that usually then that time is spent by the core group of people. Yeah. I mean, if someone else is present, that's fine. But usually there's a core group of people who have planned to be present afterwards. And then the, the, the review, um, because it really means to keep viewing it. It's mm -hmm. not over. It actually lives on with people. And so it'll go on over the telephone and so on. And then when we get together for another event, we'll actually be reviewing previous events because it actually, the Native American phrase I like is, that ritual made me, and, and, and they mean that made me a different person. And so that needs to be discussed and needs to be shared. Hmm. So, so I think there's more than one level of it. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> wow. Um, so much good stuff in this conversation. <laughs> I do. Um, you wouldn't disappoint me, Michael. I just I come <laughs> and yeah, I try to come in that hollow bone mode where I don't really have an agenda. Some stuff has been kind of clunking around in my head for a while and uh you really helped bring some things into focus and um we got into areas that i didn't expect which i think is a good sign that uh there was that openness and trusting in you know where this conversation wanted to go so i want to thank you for that and um maybe we could just take a moment to well, first of all, I'm curious about what's happening at Mosaic. I know you're doing a lot of um, outreach through the internet now. You've got the podcast. You're doing these live streams. I participated in a solstice ritual with you, which was really fun. Um, are you, do you? What's happening with Mosaic in terms of on-the-ground outreach, like doing these uh, initiation, not initiation rituals? Are you guys still involved in that? 
Well, we're on our way back to it, but we're not in a hurry. Yeah. And so uh, one of the things you were asking before we went into that last area of conversation, uh, does it have to be in person? Can it happen online? It turns out more can happen online than I would have thought. Mm. I've been surprised by that. And like when we did that solstice ritual, um, and then we kind of finished the parts that we were doing that we knew we were doing. Uh, and then uh, we were doing our review afterwards. I'm looking at corn. We were doing that, our review afterwards, and, and it was still on the screen. And like hundreds of people are still there. It's over. And, but you can see the shrines and everything. And so we wound up realizing, oh, wait a minute, this is going to continue. I don't know how long it went on for. It went on for hours and hours and hours, whereas people used the shrines that were really video representations on the screen, and they sat as if they were in a shrine. <laughs> and so there's all kinds of things to be learned. And I, I don't know how much more can be done online. So there's that. And then what we're doing is we're not in a rush to go back because uh, the things that we like to do the most are so deep and personal that we don't want to be interrupted by concerns about vaccination. And we want to make sure that we can all actually be in a deep, intimate, personal space together before we start doing it again. Mm. But we're all missing it too. Yeah. As part of uh, Mosaic's work are you doing any um trainings for ritual leadership and initiation well not per se um so what we're doing is in about a month or so we're starting a series of online mentoring workshops and so what i want to do is use the idea of mentoring as a middle ground Mm. So the mentor is between the youth and the elder. Yeah. In um, I found this tribe in Africa that calls uh, that what we would call mentoring. They call practice eldering. They oh, call the practice yeah. elder. I've been calling so, myself elder so the, in training because I know yeah. eldership is down the road yeah. for sure. But I'm yeah. in training. I'm paying attention. I'm trying to learn. <laughs> yeah. So and and I, I use the term a self in training like. Our self is trying to use everything that happens as part of our training. Mm. So we, I decided to use mentoring as a middle ground where we can look at psychological things, initiatory things, aspects of youth, because the youth continues to live in the elder. The elder without the youth is just an old person. So part of the idea of the elder is the youth, youthful qualities and the youthful dreams are still alive. Um, but then again, uh, I found an African tribe where they said, when we initiate young people, we're awake, awakening the elder in them. Mm. So mentoring seems to me to be a ground where we can look towards the elder, yeah. look towards the youth, look towards the psychological, look towards the cultural, um, look towards the ritual. So we're going to, it's a series of online workshops. So it'll involve, it actually, it's a response to people asking for training, I guess. Yeah. So or, that's one thing we're going to yeah, yeah. Like, give me some guidance. I want to step up and be of service to my local community, but I don't have a local elder to learn from. And I, I love that the way uh, that that mentor has both the younger and the elder in them. Um, 
part of the way I think about myself being 46 years old, you know, I was a young man in the 90s when you were doing all the men's movement with uh, Robert Bly and Robert Moore and James Hillman and all those guys. Um, so I see myself as very much like kind of a bridge generation right now because I think I'm still young enough to kind of get the younger generations to understand what they're, you know, I, the internet came along when I was in my late teens, right? So I've kind of got a bit of both worlds in there and I'm, and I'm old enough that I can relate to or understand what some of the older teachers are talking about or, or talked about when they were alive and I can kind of help translate in a way. And so I love that. So that would be the role of the mentor is to be a bridge. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a middle ground. Yeah, uh, and I, I should mention, and you mentioned it early on. So, but the next online workshop is initiations of self and soul. Just because I think the the imagination of initiation is critical. I think it's what's actually happening, you know, culture wide, collectively, and and so I'm going to be addressing that. And that's really the beginning of this series that could be seen partially as training. And then those things are going to be added to things that we're developing where there's written material, audio material, and unpublished material uh, that addresses each of the themes, uh, some of which you know, we've been talking about. So, we're, so Mosaic is now working that way. Um, I love working hands-on. And I, for most, for decades, everything else would be put to the side to get to those hands-on experiences because we could feel ourselves transforming and we could see and feel other people. And there's just something so beautiful and meaningful about that. And it's like, you know, when you're in that, even if you're taking a responsibility role, you're getting the benefit just like everybody else. That's oh, the way yeah. it's supposed to be. Yeah. But because we had this interruption, we're realizing that getting this, some of this stuff documented and collected has a value also. So we're going to stick with that for a while and have things that people can find online, but also uh, group the already written unpublished stuff as well. Um, and we have a whole lot, we have a whole archive of audio and we're organizing it into themes so people can use it in their own time and at their own rate. So that's where Mosaic is focused now. That's great. And I know what you mean about, you know, I'm really all about the in-person experience too. Like that's when I really come alive. That's when I'm more eloquent than I am over this medium. I find this really difficult and I'm getting better at it. I've been doing it three years, these conversations, and I'm just starting to get better. It doesn't come naturally to me. You know, you were born with the gift of the gap. Me, I'm born with the gift of intuition and feeling. The expression of that has always been real hard for me. But when I'm in the group and I'm a hollow bone, you know, the words come through. And I really love that. And I get, you know, the energy back from the group online. It feels like it's a lot of output. It's hard to get a little something back. And that's exhausting. So think of it as a different ritual. Uh, I'm looking at Corin again, because we've been going through this together. And we first started doing stuff online. I mean, the last thing I'm going to do is do something that I think is meaningful online. Let's get, if nothing else, get an audience. But better yet, let's get a retreat group. And so one of the first things I noticed is 
you're putting out and not getting back. I mean, in a conversation, you get a little bit something back. But if you're presenting something online, it was really shocking. It was like I felt isolated afterwards. I felt yeah. literally more isolated. And, to, and we started to work on what's going on, what are the psychological elements. And one way to see it, it's a very different ritual. I'm still learning about it. But I have learned the idea is you put it out without knowing who's going to see it or hear it. Um, and so it's just a matter of, of trusting in that. And then there is this odd feeling afterwards, like something was missing. We were really close to really meaningful things that are somewhat familiar. And now I call it lights on, lights off, the lights go off. Everybody's on their own. And I, I'm usually looking for, you know, I don't know. What do A I hug know? or something. I don't know. Yeah. yeah I, feel like, <laughs> I feel like going with the animals somewhere. Uh, oh, but, I, feel, uh, I feel you, man. It's like yeah, it's it's an thing. amplification of what normally happens after a a circle, a ritual, or something. You know, you're everyone's left. They're they're flying high. They're like floating out the door, and you're out there sweeping uh, all of the you know <laughs> all the dust and junk that you know. It is like that. Only it's from, more isolating yet. Yeah, and then you're just sitting there looking at this screen and going, "Okay, <laughs> I guess I'll go do the dishes now." Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, you know, one of the ways um, that makes it uh, maybe maybe easier for you is you've got so much great support on your side. And even now you're not alone in that room speaking to my image, you know. And so I just want to express a lot of gratitude to the Mosaic team that does a lot of amazing work behind the scenes. And I know just as someone like me who, you know, sends out the invitation on email, what comes back is different, you know, every person, how it comes back is different, but your team has always been like really prompt, um, really organized, really helpful. And um, all of the stuff I've done with you online has just the production, the way you guys set up, even the backgrounds is amazing. And I know you got a lot of help there. So I just want to acknowledge that and uh, express my gratitude. Yeah. And particularly corn. Corn's yeah. a part of each element that you mentioned. So, yeah. 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 And that, that's part of it is, is it, yeah. Yeah. We yeah, need to I, support our elders. Using. You know, we, we need to support our elders. We need to like make sure they're yeah. got their comfortable, comfortable camp chair around the fire and they got their, their hot drinks or the hot toddy, whatever. Right. We got to take care of our elders. So I'll, thanks. Corn. I'll remind them of that. I'll remind them of that. <laughs> and a little back rub corn. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Michael, thanks again. And uh, I'll include yeah. links for everything that's coming up for you. And uh, right. I'll, I'll be joining you for some of that for sure. Thanks. All right. Great to see you. Great to talk, Brian. Take care. All right. Keep up the good work. See you out there someday. See you up on uh, Vancouver Island someday. Yeah. The Medicine Path is produced by Brian James on unceded Coast Salish territory. Vancouver Island, Canada. For more information, visit brianjames.ca. Music by Olive Artizoni, aka Greenhouse. Join the Medicine Path Tribe and gain early access to episodes and the full podcast archives at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. 
May the rain fall soft upon your fields. Until the next time we meet on the Medicine Path. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.